This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. Balfinch Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Balfinch. Chapter 20 Theseus, Daedalus, Castor, and Pollux. Theseus. Theseus was the son of Aegeus, king of Athens, and of Aetra, daughter of the king of Troetzen. He was brought up at Troetzen, and when arrived at manhood, was to proceed to Athens, and present himself to his father. Aegeus, on parting from Aetra, before the birth of his son, placed his sword and shoes under a large stone, and directed her to send his son to him, when he became strong enough to roll away the stone and take them from under it. When she thought the time had come, his mother led Theseus to the stone, and he removed it with ease and took the sword and shoes. As the roads were infested with robbers, his grandfather pressed him earnestly to take the shorter and safer way to his father's country, by sea. But the youth, feeling in himself the spirit and the soul of the hero, and eager to signalize himself like Hercules, with whose fame all Greece and rank, by destroying the evildoers and monsters that oppressed the country, determined on the more perilous and adventurous journey by land. His first day's journey brought him to Epidaurus, where dwelt a man named Periphetes, a son of Vulcan. This ferocious savage always went armed with a club of iron, and all travelers stood in terror of his violence. When he saw Theseus approach, he assailed him, but speedily fell beneath the blows of the young hero, who took possession of his club and bore it ever afterwards as a memorial of his first victory. Several similar contests with the petty tyrants and marauders of the country followed, in all of which Theseus was victorious. One of these evildoers was called Procrustes, or the Stretcher. He had an iron bedstead, on which he used to tie all travelers who fell into his hands. If they were shorter than the bed, he stretched their limbs to make them fit it. If they were longer than the bed, he lopped off a portion. Theseus served him as he had served others. Having overcome all the perils of the road, Theseus at length reached Athens, where new dangers awaited him. Medea, the sorceress, who had fled from Corinth after her separation from Jason, had become the wife of Aegeus, the father of Theseus. Knowing by her arts who he was, and fearing the loss of her influence with her husband if Theseus should be acknowledged as his son, she filled the mind of Aegeus with suspicions of the young stranger, and induced him to present him a cup of poison. But at the moment when Theseus stepped forward to take it, the sight of the sword which he wore discovered to his father who he was, and prevented the fatal draught. Medea, detected in her arts, fled once more from deserved punishment, and arrived in Asia, where the country afterwards called Medea, received its name from her. Theseus was acknowledged by his father, and declared his successor. 
The Athenians were at that time in deep affliction on account of the tribute which they were forced to pay to Minos, king of Crete. This tribute consisted of seven youths and seven maidens, who were sent every year to be devoured by the Minotaur, a monster with a bull's body and a human head. It was exceedingly strong and fierce, and was kept in a labyrinth, constructed by Daedalus, so artfully contrived that whoever was enclosed in it could by no means find his way out unassisted. Here the Minotaur roamed, and was fed with human victims. Theseus resolved to deliver his countrymen from this calamity, or to die in the attempt. Accordingly, when the time of sending off the tribute came, and the youths and maidens were, according to custom, drawn by lot to be sent, he offered himself as one of the victims, in spite of the entreaties of his father. The ship departed under black sails, as usual, which Theseus promised his father to change for white, in case of his returning victorious. When they arrived in Crete, the youths and maidens were exhibited before Minos, and Ariadne, the daughter of the king, being present, became deeply enamored of Theseus, by whom her love was readily returned. She furnished him with a sword, with which to encounter the Minotaur, with which to encounter the Minotaur, and with a clue of thread by which he might find his way out of the labyrinth. He was successful, slew the Minotaur, escaped from the labyrinth, and taking Ariadne as the companion of his way, with his rescued companions sailed for Athens. On their way they stopped at the island of Naxos, where Theseus abandoned Ariadne, leaving her asleep. Footnote. One of the finest pieces of sculpture in Italy, the recumbent Ariadne of the Vatican, represents this incident. A copy is owned by the Athenaeum, Boston, and deposited in the Museum on Fine Arts. End of footnote. His excuse for this ungrateful treatment of his benefactress was that Minerva appeared to him in a dream and commanded him to do so. On approaching the coast of Attica, Theseus forgot the signal appointed by his father, and neglected to raise the white sails, and the old king, thinking his son had perished, put an end to his own life. Theseus thus became king of Athens. One of the most celebrated of the adventures of Theseus is his expedition against the Amazons. He assailed them before they had recovered from the attack of Hercules, and carried off their queen Antiope. The Amazons in their turn invaded the country of Athens, and penetrated into the city itself, and the final battle in which Theseus overcame them was fought in the very midst of the city. This battle was one of the favorite subjects of the ancient sculptors, and is commemorated in several works of art that are still extant. The friendship between Theseus and Piritus was of a most intimate nature, yet it originated in the midst of arms. Piritus had made an eruption into the plain of Marathon, and carried off the herds of the king of Athens. Theseus went to repel the plunderers. The moment Piritus beheld him, he was seized with admiration. He stretched out his hands, as a token of peace, and cried, Be judge thyself, 
What satisfaction does thou require? Thy friendship, replied the Athenian, and they swore inviolable fidelity. Their deeds corresponded to their professions, and they ever continued true brothers in arms. Each of them aspired to espouse a daughter of Jupiter. Theseus fixed his choice on Helen, then but a child, afterwards so celebrated as the cause of the Trojan War, and with the aid of his friend he carried her off. Pyritus aspired to the wife of the monarch of Erebus, and Theseus, though aware of the danger, accompanied the ambitious lover in his descent to the underworld. But Pluto seized and set them on an enchanted rock at his palace gate, where they remained till Hercules arrived and liberated Theseus, leaving Pyritus to his fate. After the death of Antiope, Theseus married Phadra, daughter of Minos, king of Crete. Phadra saw in Hippolytus, the son of Theseus, a youth endowed with all the graces and virtues of his father, and of an age corresponding to her own. She loved him, but he repulsed her advances, and her love was changed to hate. She used her influence over her infatuated husband to cause him to be jealous of his son, and he imprecated the vengeance of Neptune upon him. As Hippolytus was one day driving his chariot along the shore, a sea monster raised himself above the waters, and frightened the horses so that they ran away and dashed the chariot to pieces. Hippolytus was killed, but by Diana's assistance, Asculapius restored him to life. Diana removed Hippolytus from the power of his deluded father, and false stepmother, and placed him in Italy under the protection of the nymph Egeria. Theseus at length lost the favor of his people, and retired to the court of Lycomedes, king of Scyros, who at first received him kindly, but afterwards treacherously slew him. In a later age the Athenian general Simon discovered the place where his remains were laid, and caused them to be moved, to Athens, where they were deposited in a temple called the Theseum, erected in honor of the hero. The queen of the Amazons, whom Theseus espoused, is by some called Hippolyta. That is the name she bears in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, the subject of which is the festivities attending the nuptials of Theseus and Hippolyta. Mrs. Hemans has a poem on the ancient Greek tradition that the shade of Theseus appeared strengthening his countrymen at the Battle of Marathon. Theseus is a semi-historical personage. It is recorded of him that he united the several tribes by whom the territory of Attica was then possessed into one state, of which Athens was the capital. In commemoration of this important event, he instituted the festival of Panathenaea in honor of Minerva, the patron deity of Athens. This festival differed from the other Grecian games chiefly in two particulars. It was peculiar to the Athenians, and its chief feature was a solemn procession in which the peplus, or sacred robe of Minerva, was carried to the Parthenon and suspended before the statue of the goddess. The peplus was covered with embroidery, worked by select virgins of the noblest families in Athens. The procession consisted of persons of all ages and both sexes. 
The old men carried olive branches in their hands, and the young men bore arms. The young women carried baskets on their heads, containing the sacred utensils, cakes, and all things necessary for the sacrifices. The procession formed the subject of the bas-reliefs, which embellish the outside of the temple of the Parthenon. A considerable portion of these sculptures is now in the British Museum, among those known as the Elgin Marbles. Olympic and Other Games It seems not inappropriate to mention here the other celebrated national games of the Greeks. The first and most distinguished were the Olympic, founded, it was said, by Jupiter himself. They were celebrated at Olympia in Elis. Whilst numbers of spectators flocked to them from every part of Greece, and from Asia, Africa, and Sicily, they were repeated every fifth year in midsummer, and continued five days. They gave rise to the custom of reckoning time and dating events by Olympiads. The first Olympiad is generally considered as corresponding with the year 776 B.C. The Pythian Games were celebrated in the vicinity of Delphi, the Isthmian on the Corinthian Isthmus, the Nemean at Nemea, a city of Argolis. The exercises in these games were of five sorts, running, leaping, wrestling, throwing the quoit, and hurling the javelin, or boxing. Besides these exercises of bodily strength and agility, there were contests in music, poetry, and eloquence. Thus these games furnished poets, musicians, and authors the best opportunities to present their productions to the public, and the fame of the victors was diffused far and wide. Diadalus The labyrinth from which Theseus escaped by means of the clue of Ariadne was built by Diadalus, a most skillful artificer. It was an edifice with numberless winding passages and turnings opening into one another, and seeming to have neither beginning nor end, like the river Minder, which returns on itself, and flows no onward nor backward, in its course to the sea. Daedalus built the labyrinth for King Minos, but afterwards lost the favor of the king, and was shut up in a tower. He contrived to make his escape from his prison, but could not leave the island by sea, as the king kept strict watch on all the vessels, and permitted none to sail without being carefully searched. Minos may control the land and sea, said Daedalus, but not the regions of the air. I will try that way. So he set to work to fabricate wings for himself and his young son Icarus. He wrought feathers together, beginning with the smallest and adding larger, so as to form an increasing surface. The larger ones he secured with thread, and the smaller with wax, and gave the whole a gentle curvature like the wings of a bird. Icarus, the boy, stood and looked on, sometimes running to gather up the feathers which the wind had blown away, and then handling the wax and working it over with his fingers, by his play impending his father in his labors. When at last... The work was done, the artist, waving his wings, found himself bowed upward, and hung suspended, poising himself on the beaten air. He next equipped his son in the same manner, and taught him how to fly, 
as a bird tempts her young ones from the lofty nest into the air. When all was prepared for flight, he said, Icarus, my son, I charge you to keep at a moderate height, for if you fly too low, the damp will clog your wings, and if too high, the heat will melt them. Keep near me, and you will be safe. While he gave him these instructions, and fitted the wings to his shoulders, the face of the father was wet with tears, and his hands trembled. He hissed his boy, not knowing that it was for the last time. Then rising on his wings he flew off, encouraging him to follow, and looked back from his own flight to see how his son managed his wings. As they flew the ploughman stopped his work to gaze, and the shepherd leaned on his staff and watched them, astonished at the sight, and thinking they were gods who could thus clear the air. They passed Samos and Delos on the left, and Lebintos on the right, when the boy, exulting in his career, began to leave the guidance of his companion, and soar upward as if to reach heaven. The nearness of the blazing sun softened the wax which held the feathers together, and they came off. He fluttered with his arms, but no feathers remained to hold the air. While his mouth uttered cries to his father, it was submerged in the blue waters of the sea, which thenceforth was called by his name. His father cried, Icarus, Icarus, where are you? At last he saw the feathers floating on the water, and bitterly lamenting his own arts, he buried the body and called the land Icaria in memory of his child. Daedalus arrived safe in Sicily, where he built a temple to Apollo, and hung up his wings, an offering to the god. Daedalus was so proud of his achievements that he could not bear the idea of a rival. His sister had placed her son Perdix under his charge, to be taught the mechanical arts. He was an apt scholar, and gave striking evidences of ingenuity. Walking on the seashore, he picked up the spine of a fish. Imitating it, he took a piece of iron and notched it on at the edge, and thus invented the saw. He put two pieces of iron together, connecting them at one end with a rivet, and sharpening the other ends, and made a pair of compasses. Daedalus was so envious of his nephew's performances that he took an opportunity, when they were together one day on the top of a high tower, to push him off. But Minerva, who favors ingenuity, saw him falling, and arrested his fate by changing him into a bird, called after his name, the partridge. This bird does not build his nest in the trees, nor take lofty flights, but nestles in the hedges, and mindful of his fall, avoids high places. The death of Icarus is told in the following lines by Darwin. With melting wax and loosened strings, sunk hapless Icarus on unfaithful wings, headlong he rushed through the affrighted air, with limbs distorted and disheveled hair. His scattered plumage danced upon the wave, and sorrowing nereids decked his watery grave. O'er his pale course their pearly sea-flowers shed, and strewed with crimson moss his marble bed. Struck in their coral towers the passing bell, and wide in ocean told his echoing knell. Castor and Pollux 
Castor and Pollux were the offspring of Leda and the Swan, under which disguise Jupiter had concealed himself. Leda gave birth to an egg, from which sprang the twins. Helen, so famous afterwards as the cause of the Trojan War, was their sister. When Theseus and his friend Piritus had carried off Helen from Sparta, the youthful heroes Castro and Pollux, with their followers, hastened to her rescue. Theseus was absent from Attica, and the brothers were successful in recovering their sister. Castor was famous for taming and managing horses, and Pollux for skill in boxing. They were united by the warmest affection, and inseparable in all their enterprises. They accompanied the Argonautic expedition. During the voyage a storm arose, and Orpheus prayed to the Samothracian gods, and played on his harp whereupon the storm ceased, and stars appeared on the heads of the brothers. From this incident, Castor and Pollux came afterwards to be considered the patron deities of seamen and voyagers, and the lambent flames, which in certain states of the atmosphere play round the sails and masts of the vessels, were called by their names. After the Argonautic expedition, we find Castor and Pollux engaged in a war, with Idas and Lunceus. Castor was slain, and Pollux, inconsolable for the loss of his brother, besought Jupiter to be permitted to give his own life as a ransom for him. Jupiter so far consented as to allow the two brothers to enjoy the boon of life alternately, passing one day under the earth and the next in the heavenly abodes. According to another form of the story, Jupiter rewarded the attachment of the brothers by placing them among the stars as Gemini the twins. They received divine honors under the name of Discuri, sons of Jove. They were believed to have appeared occasionally in later times, taking part with one side or the other in hard-fought fields, and were said on such occasions to be mounted on magnificent white steeds. Thus in the early history of Rome, they are said to have assisted the Romans at the Battle of Lake Regillus, and after the victory, a temple was erected in their honor on the spot where they appeared. Macaulay, in his Lays of Ancient Rome, thus alludes to the legend. So like they were, no mortal, might one from other know, white as snow their armor was, their steeds were white as snow. Never an earthly anvil did such rare armor gleam, and never did such gallant steeds drink of an earthly stream. Back comes the chief in triumph, who in the hour of fight hath seen the great twin brethren in harness on his right. Safe comes the ship to heaven, through billows and through gales, if once the great twin brethren sit shining on the sails. End of chapter 20